Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now starting a new book, the book of Galatians. I'm going to, going to do chapter 1, verses 1 through 10 in Galatians. Let me give you some introduction first. The author, of course, is Paul. No one has ever doubted this. A few 19th century authors that were doubting everything. They probably doubted their own existence. They might have doubted it, but nobody doubts that Paul was the author, not even the liberal. So that's good. The date and destination now is a little bit more complicated. There are two main views of this. There's the North Galatian theory and the South Galatian theory as to who and related to that when Paul wrote, was writing. To whom and when was he writing? The North Galatian theory, which is the older theory, says that, that well, let me, before I go into that theory, I need to des- describe what caused the problem. Galatia is a place name or a geographic name. It's not, necess- it's not a political name. And it's an area that covers from the northern shore of the southern shore of the Black Sea in Asia Minor, all the way down through Asia Minor, through the center of Asia Minor, all the way down to the northern shore of the Mediterranean. It's a big area. So when Paul says, I'm writing to the Galatians, or when when it said that the epistle is the epistle to the Galatians, the question is, is what part of Galatia is Paul talking about? Well, the northern part, the part further up toward the Black Sea, that was where the Gauls had settled when they had invaded the area in the 3rd century B.C. These are the same Gauls that gave the, their name to ancient France. All Gaul is divided into three parts, as Julius Caesar said. The Gauls also ended up in Greek history. They had a big invasion of Greece right before the Romans took over and after Alexander the Great was had, had uh, died, I think, if I remember my history correctly. So the Gauls were, that's where the name Galatians came from, which surprised me when I found that out. Well... The theory, according to the North Galatian theory, is that Paul visited these churches on his second missionary journey, even though there is no reference to this. If you recall reading through Acts, Paul leaves Antioch and then, boom, he's all the way through Asia Minor and he's he's all the way on the western end of it. He ends up in Ephesus eventually, but there's nothing about the churches that he passed through in the middle. Well, according to this theory, Paul visited these churches at this time. So the date on that theory would be, be be between 53 and 57 A.D. because by the time Paul got to Ephesus, that's about one. For example, he wrote Second Corinthians. He wrote First Corinthians from Ephesus in about 55 A.D. And so that's right here between 53 and 57. So somewhere he's in Ephesus, and the theory is he wrote back to the Northern Galatian churches, whoever they might be, right around that time. Or he could have written from Macedonia when he was waiting for Titus to come back from the Corinthians. That was also in late 55 approximately, probably. So that's one theory. The South Galatian theory says, rather, that Paul wrote to the churches in South Galatia, whom we know about, or that we know about, the church at Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, those are four churches. Paul visited them on his first journey and went back through them on his way back home on his first journey. And then he went back out on his second journey and went through them again on his way out to western Anatolia, western Asia Minor. Uh, the date, if you take the South Galatian theory, the date for the letter of, to, of the letter to the Galatians would be between 48. Well, actually, there's disagreements on that. If you take the South Galatian theory, you can either say Paul wrote it in AD 48 and 49 when he came just after he came back from his first missionary journey and right before the Jerusalem Council, which was in 50 AD. Again, the dates are approximate because of the controversies that come when we start talking about chronology, but that's good enough. That's Those are good dates. Or he could have written the letter to the Galatians after the first council, 
after the Jerusalem Council, right before the second journey. Well, most modern scholars take the South Galatian theory. Most early church fathers took the North Galatian theory. Here's two arguments or three arguments in favor of the South Galatian theory. One, we have in Scripture actual names of the churches there, and it makes sense that Paul goes through these churches and writes back to them. Two, there were no trade routes that went through North Galatia in Paul's time, but they did go through South Galatia, and we know that Paul always traveled on trade routes, so that just makes sense. You got more people, more places, it's easier for the apostolic band to travel. Third argument in favor of South Galatia, Paul wrote in Greek, but the North Galatians were mostly indigenous tribes, you know, these these Gauls, these barbarians that we read about all the time. I'm not so sure they're going to be speaking in Koine Greek. He probably would have used some kind of indigenous language, if he, some kind of Celtic language, if he had known it. So those three arguments, without having looked at it too much, because I don't really think it matters that much, I, I tend to favor the South Galatian theory. So I'm going to assume that as we go through. Does it matter whether Paul was writing to the north or the south? Of Galatia, theologically, no, not a bit. If the legalists were in the north or the legalists were in the south, they were still legalists and anathema on them, a curse be on them. Chronologically, it makes a little bit of difference if you're worried about the timing of Paul's four visits to Jerusalem because some evidence we have for one of his, maybe even for, for some of his visits to Jerusalem, one or two, come from Galatians, and if you and the date of Galatians might affect where you put his chronologically where you put his visit to Jerusalem. But again, that's a minor technical issue. It doesn't really matter for most people. What was the occasion and purpose of this letter? Well, this is important. To fight Jewish Christians, the Judaizers, who insisted on the necessity of keeping law for salvation. Now, when I hear that term Judaizers, I assume these people are Christians, but they're just screwed up. There's a lot of Christians today I know that think they got to keep the law to get saved. They are preaching another gospel, and some of them aren't saved. I know that, too. But I think some of them are just screwed up in their heads and messed up. So I don't know whether these people were Christians or not Christians, but they were wrong about saying that the law was necessary for salvation. Now, of course, that is a, a tremendously essential truth of the gospel. There is no issue, no issue in the history of Christianity that is more important than the issue of faith and works, the, relation, the role that works play in our faith. Are they the fruit of our salvation? Well, that's, we all agree with that. But are they the root of our salvation? Well, if you believe that, then you are a heretic. And then, of course, there's the intermediate positions like the semi-Pelagian and then the Arminian positions that are often accused of believing in work sal- salvation by works, which, of course, they deny it. So, we, you know, there's a lot of bunch of the- – that just all the theological arguments that we have today. It goes boils down to this question of faith and works. You've got to steer clear of s- stating a position that works – are the basis of your salvation, because if you do that, you are accursed and preaching a different gospel. So it's very serious business. Luther rediscovered this work, and his rediscovery of the work brought about the Reformation. Galatians is often called Luther's book, because Luther relied on it so much. So there's your issue, legalism. Paul calls himself an apostle in the first verse there. That's one who is sent on a mission with full authority of representation. Paul, an apostle. That's the first thing he says to the Galatians, an apostle. I haven't read the verse to you yet. I probably ought to do that. Galatians 1.1. 1, 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Paul was not sent from men. He had a direct theological vision. He had a direct vision of Jesus. He was not sent out by the Jerusalem pillar apostles or by anybody else. He had seen Jesus personally. Jesus personally sent him out. No man did. Acts 26.16, when Paul was before Herod Agrippa II, after his third journey, he's in Jerusalem, been, been, been arrested for his own safety by the 
by the Roman uh, Lysias there. He says to, he's on trial before Herod Agrippa II, he says, but get up and stand on your feet. Well, this is Paul recounting his Acts 9 conversion experience. This is Jesus talking to Paul. But get up and stand on your feet, for I, Jesus, have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and a witness of what you have seen and what I will reveal to you. So Paul used his vision of Jesus to establish his authority as apostle. Now, of course, what's the problem with that? As soon as you do that, you're doing something subjective, and people are going to just say, oh, he's nuts. He had a vision. He's a lunatic. Now, other people, Paul has got to validate his claim as an apostle because he's opposed in Galatia, just like he was opposed in Corinth. And so he's got to appeal to his authority as an apostle. Now, he appeals to this vision, but of course the problem with that is that nobody else could prove or disprove a vision. It's subjective. Well, let's look at how Paul vindicated his authority to the Corinthians. He did that to the Corinthians in various ways. He used subjective witnesses. One time he appealed to his conscience. He said, my conscience is pure and sincere. Another time he appealed to the witness of the Corinthians' conscience. He says, you know me. I started the church. Test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Well, how'd you get in the faith? Because I led you in the faith. So look at yourself. Look at your own conscience. Paul used objective witnesses in addition to subjective witnesses. Signs and wonders he appealed to. I did more miracles than my opponents did. He appealed to the Corinthian church itself. After all, who established the church? It's hard to establish a church. Paul did it. He probably used the testimony of Titus, who he had sent down there to Corinth to try to straighten him out. And Titus, of course, is going to stick up for Paul, appeal to his apostolic authority. He could have used the objective witnesses of Stephanatus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, the three brothers from Corinth who had come over to Ephesus and were with Paul, and who could go back to Corinth and testify to Paul's good character. So Paul used every witness he could. He had to establish his authority. Anytime you get involved in in controversy, theological controversy, what's the first thing people are going to say? What seminary did you go to? Where did you learn that? Or what big shot theologian are you quoting? That's just the way it is. Paul didn't appeal to um, his rabbinic learning. He didn't appeal to other big shot theologians. He, he appealed to what he had done. Signs and wonders started the church, and he appealed to who he had seen, Jesus. And, of course, no matter how good your defense of your authority is, there are always going to be people who disbelieve you. There are people today, lots of people in the world that disbelieve Paul. But for somebody who knew the truth, he appealed to what he knew, and he had seen Jesus. And he was sent, apostle means a sent messenger, one who was sent, and he was sent, how? By Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He mentions the first two persons of the Trinity, and then he mentions that the first person raised the second person from the dead. The resurrection is a central focal point of the gospel. I, I noticed this first when I was going through Acts, preparing these audios, and I noticed that they always talked about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the dead. Without the resurrection of the dead, you are all men most miserable. You have no future. You have no hope. And without the resurrection of the dead, that means Jesus didn't conquer death, and that means we who are identified with Christ, we have not conquered death. That means we're going to die. So yeah, the resurrection from the dead is important, and that's why he mentions it. In fact, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you might as well say, I'm a pagan, I'm a heretic. It's in all the creeds for all you creed lovers out there and for all you people who say that you don't believe in creeds because it's all in the Bible. Well, guess what? It's all through the Bible, too. Paul, in appealing to his authority, going back to that point, he was not commissioned by any assembly or council of the apostles either, as Adam Clark points out. I already mentioned he wasn't sent out by Peter, James, and John in the Jerusalem church, but... No other council sent him out either. Now, he's very authoritative in this letter. And why does he have to appeal to his authority? 
because he's dealing with errorists. I'll, I won't call them heretics. I guess I could. I, I, I distinguish in my terminology a heretic is somebody who's going to hell. Errorist is somebody who's wrong, but nevertheless, because of Christ's forgiveness, is going to heaven. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt. We'll say these Galatian legalists were errorists. Now, an interesting thing about this, Paul doesn't associate brothers with himself in the salutation there as he does in his other letters. I went through and looked at his 14 letters just out of curiosity. In 1 Thessalonians 1.1, it was Paul's Silas and Timothy, or Silvanus, Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 2 Thessalonians, he, uh, he said Paul, Silas, and Timothy again. When he wrote to the 1 Corinthians, he said Paul, the Sosthenes. When he wrote to the 2 Corinthians, he said Paul and Timothy. When he wrote to Philippi, he said Paul and Timothy. When he wrote to the Colossians, Paul and Timothy. When he wrote to Philemon, Paul and Timothy. And what I learned by that little trip is Timothy was one of his closest companions. Had to be. He mentions them all the time in his letters. Some books he didn't associate anybody in the greetings, the Romans, and the Galatians. This is Galatians. Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Now, why he didn't, this speculation with this commentator, I forgot who it was, said that it's because Paul wanted to be more authoritative. He didn't want to associate anybody else with his condemnations of the heretics. I don't know why. It seems like if he... Seemed like he'd be more authoritative to me to mention somebody else. But at any rate, he didn't. He just mentions himself. I'll leave that so you so you can take it for what it's worth. Galatians 1-2, Paul continues, And all the brothers are with me. Of course, we don't know who those brothers are because we don't know where Paul wrote the church letter from. We don't know when he wrote it from. I mentioned all that North and South Galatian theory, so we don't care. To the churches of Galatia, notice that Paul never addresses the pastors of the churches of Galatia. In fact, if you go through all of his 14 letters, to the ones that are addressed to churches at least, it's never to the pastor of the church at Corinth, to the pastor of the church at Thessalonica. Never. Because, because they did not have one-man pastors. They had elders, so it was just as easy to send it to the church at large. Now, sometimes he addresses the elders not the pastor, the single pastor. Sometimes he addresses the elders, plural pastors. But when he does, he always includes the brethren in the address to the elders and the brethren. The church was not hierarchical. And all of you Catholics and Lutherans and Presbyterians and denominationalists out there, think about that. Think about how hierarchical your church is. You've got to go to the bishop, the senior, the junior pastor, the senior pastor, the associate bishop, the synod, the synod then the presbytery, then the diocesis, and then the cardinalate and then the papacy you know all that stuff it was simple back then when the church was simple would to god that we would go back to that maybe the coronavirus will help us do that maybe the china you know in china already because of the last three years of persecution under xi jing mao zedong ping who's decided he wants to wipe christianity off the face of china the christians are now according to asia harvest the christians are now meaning at the most five or six people in houses so the government can't find them they were prepared for the coronavirus when it hit because that, that's what they were already doing. They're kicking foreigners out, foreign missionaries out of the country. I left about three years ago, so I, I, did, I, I, got, I lost one job because of it. But then it really got into high gear, and now there was a great church I went to. They all had to go back to the States, and the members behind there communicating through encrypted web technology and I've talked to some of them, and they're meeting alone in houses, sometimes on the side of a mountain. I say alone. So, well, some of them are meeting with Zoom, meeting with uh, this teleworking software, and some of them are just gathering together in small prayer groups. They're not going to die. Xi Jinping's going to die before he kills the church. But nonetheless, my point is, is there's no hierarchy. 
you know, and and there wasn't any hierarchy, and there's no hierarchy in China really, and there was no hierarchy in the early church. Why do we have to do it like that and make the church a corporation and turn everybody else off with all of its impersonality and bureaucracy and program-centered worship? Now, when Paul says to the churches of Galatia, that means that this was a circular letter to the Galatian churches, as NIV Study Bible points out. It's not just to one church. Of course, we don't know because of the difference in theories what, what churches they were. I'm assuming Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby in the south of Galatia. Now, the fact that Paul mentions that all the brothers who are with me, that doesn't mean that they helped write the letter. It just means that he's sending his greetings along, the brothers that are with him. And, of course, Paul always had brothers with him, by the way. He was not a lone ranger. Galatians 1, 3-5, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Now, grace and peace, those were commonly used salutations in secular letters. But Paul gave a spiritual twist to them, a spiritual meaning to grace and peace. Grace, unmerited favor from God. We don't deserve it, but God, because of his love, he, loves, he, he gives us grace anyway. He gives us a gift of salvation. Grace means gift. We don't work for it. We receive it as a gift. And peace comes along with that grace because now we're no longer enemies of God, but we're his friend. He looks, he's on our side. Now, he mentions that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. This is a central port, central focus of the gospel message, of course. Let's look at some verses real quick. Matthew one twenty one, She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because, this is the angel speaking concerning Mary, you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means, Joshua, to save. He will save his people from their sins. And John 1.29, the next day G John saw Jesus coming toward him. That's John the Baptist and said, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Takes away the sin. 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, instead of us. According to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. So, the fact that Jesus takes away our sins is one of the central messages of the gospel. And if you ask me, that's the most important thing. I can't think of anything more important. I mean, all the things that Jesus and the disciples and the apostles and, the, and all of the evangelists and everything that they do, they did a lot of other stuff and talked about a lot of other stuff about that. But they were all the things that they did, the things they said were all means to an end. And the end was that we would be saved from our sins. That's the, the summum bonum. That's the most important thing. And Jesus rescues us from this present evil age, Paul says. Well, now, what is the evil age? Well, that word age shows up a lot in the scriptures, and it causes a lot of problems because people interpret it differently. For example, the NIV Study Bible says that the present evil age means now as opposed to the end of the world and the climax of Jesus' messianic period. I don't believe that's what it means. Adam Clark says it means the age of the Jews. Generally, when Jewish people talk about ages, they're talking about the pre-Messianic age and the post-Messianic age, the old age and the new age. That's generally what they're doing. So let me read Adam Clark here. Quote, the apostle, therefore, must mean the Jews and their system of cardinal ordinances, statutes, all of which were not good. Now, that makes sense to me, given the context. What's Paul doing here? He's fighting Judaizers all through the book of Galatians. And so he mentions this present evil age, which is full of legalists. That makes a lot of sense. I don't think he's talking about now as compared to the end of the world. According to the will of our God and Father, Paul says this salvation is going to come, this rescuing from our sins is going to come. 
According to the will of our God and Father, as John Gill puts it, quote, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God delivered Christ into the hands of the wicked. It was his will that Jesus die. As Peter famously said in his Pentecostal sermon, he says, you killed him, but God foreordained it before the foundation of the world. It was according to God's will that he saved us from our sins, those who believe in him. Paul says in verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever, to whom as either God or, or Jesus. I think it's God because that's the closest noun to the pronoun here. According to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. This reminds me of the Westminster Catechism, which I learned as a young, I think I was a junior high kid. Question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The end of man is to glorify God. You know, I think that's forgotten a lot of times. Glorify him. What is glory? It means the public manifestation of the excellent characteristics of one. And to glorify means to tell everybody publicly about how wonderful God is. Galatians 1, 6-7, Paul says, I'm amazed. He's finished with the salutation now, and he's turning to the problem at hand. Galatians 1, 6-7, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to change the good news about the Messiah. Now, Paul calls this legalism a different gospel, and then he says not that there is another gospel. He's using the word gospel in an ironic sense here. It's a different gospel. It's not really a gospel. It's a different gospel. If Paul did not, back then, the Greeks, of course, did not use punctuation, see, like we do today. So if if we were writing that today, we would say, you are turning to a different Air quote, gospel, close air quote. We'd put air quotes around gospel to show that it's irony he's speaking about because there's only one true gospel. There are some who are troubling you. That's referring to the Judaizers. And, of course, that does not mean the whole church had turned to apostasy. Just some. It's always troublemakers. And same thing with Corinth. Paul had the same trouble with Judaizers in Corinth. He had other troubles with other people there, too, besides the Judaizers, I'm sure. But he also, that was one of his main focuses, was dealing with, are they Hebrews? Well, I'm a Hebrew too. You know, so we know they're Judaizers in Corinth too. They're troubling you and want to change the good news about the Messiah. Now here I think the Holman Christian Study Bible translation is weak. The King James has, they want to pervert the good news about the Messiah. Oh, that sounds much better, pervert. These, legalized, these Judaizers are perverts. They're not just changers. They're perverts. It just sounds so much better. And you know, I'm not the King James translation a lot because it's got a lot of bad translations in it, but... Sometimes the KGV has better translations, and right there I think there's one, that's one. Now Paul is amazed that the Galatians are so quickly turning away from Christ, or from God, called away from, turning away from God who called you by the grace of Christ. That's probably God there. Could be Jesus. But anyway, they're turning away from the faith, and quickly it depends. I, I did just a little bit of mathematical computation here. Um, the quickly, as the NIV study Bible says, it could mean they've turned away so quickly soon after their conversion. Now, on the South Galatian theory, um, the Galatians was written somewhere between 48 and 53, depending on whether he wrote it. Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians just after the first journey before the Jerusalem Council or after the Jerusalem Council before he got started on the second. The Galatians were converted on the first journey, 48 to 49. So if you take the difference there, just roughly between when, on the South Galatian theory, between when the letter was written and when the Galatians were converted, you got one to four years, somewhere between one and four years, it took the Galatians to go back to legalism. That's pretty quick. 
Or if you take the North Galatian theory and you think that Paul wrote back to the Galatians on his second journey, which would be a little bit later, 53 to 57 A.D., and they were converted on the first journey, 48 to 49, that difference is roughly four to seven years it took them back to get to legalism. So depending on your theory, it all adds up to either one to seven years, and they are about to go into the tank. And since I believe in the South Galatian theory, I'm looking, it's looking at one to four years, say two years. Anyway, it wasn't long. Now it says that either God or Jesus called you by the grace of Christ. Call, that would be the effectual call. The Reformed theologians love to make a distinction between the general call, that's the call that goes out to the whole world. The effectual call is the call that actually causes people to get saved. And of course, these Galatians are saved, so that would be the effectual call for those of you who care about that. Now, the interesting thing is Paul refers to a different gospel which is, of course, a false gospel. Adam Clark thinks that refers to an actual book, an actual false, false gospel written by a heretic. In other words, it's not just a body of teaching that's floating around in Galatia, but an actual book. And this gospel, of course, would contain requirements of circumcision for salvation and so forth. Well, that's an interesting theory. We go to Galatians 1, 8 through 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Verse 9. As we have said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to which you received, a curse be on him. Well, obviously, he said it twice. Why? Because he's mad as hops. He's trying to drill into these thick-headed Galatians. You are playing with fire, my friends. Now, when he says we, of course, that's the editorial we. He's talking about Paul. He could be talking about his fellow apostles with him, but he didn't mention any fellow apostle when he wrote the book to the Galatians. So I'm assuming he's talking about himself. He says, even if I, an apostle who's seen Jesus, comes and preaches another gospel, let me be accursed. Or if an angel from heaven should come, let him be accursed. Now, that's pretty strong language. Now, this is how postmodern evangelifish would have dealt with the issue. Well, brothers, I'm not sure about the problem of works. Let's have a conversation about it. Tell me your story. And, of course, the guy be standing there with big holes. He's 40 years old, trying to look like he's 20. Got big holes in his blue jeans. Got his hair skinned around his ears, but it's long on the top. And he's got some some ratty sweatshirt on that makes Bill, Bill Belichick look like a fashion, like a GQ fashion model. Have you ever noticed how all these hotshot t- preachers these days, and the churches all look a lot, they're black, they got the... They got the PowerPoints in the middle and the sound playing at 200 decibels. And they're trying to be relevant. Well, they're going to have a conversation. They're not going to dare try to say that something's true. It might offend a postmodern in the audience. Paul doesn't talk like that, does he? He says, you're going to be accursed, buddy. You deny the truth, you're going to be accursed. I I think that some of these people that I've just described, what I I loosely call evangelifish, I don't think they know how to read. They claim they believe the Bible, at least intellectually, but you look, you read in the, in the Bible, you don't see anything like what they're doing. As John, John Gill points out, because Paul repeated the curse in two separate verses, this shows that he didn't lightly, hastily, by mistake, or in the heat of anger, say it the first time. He meant what he said. He made a thoughtful and mature condemnation. Now, Paul is using hyperbole here because he knows an angel is not going to come from heaven and preach a false gospel. It was impossible. He was using that hyperbole to make a point. And since the preach is in the subjunctive, the, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, quote, the Greek implies a case supposed which never has occurred. This is a if, if it were possible type of statement. If it were possible that we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. Why would he mention an angel? 
According to Adam Clark, Paul was referring to the fact that many false teachers claim to receive their teaching from an angel. So Paul's saying, okay, these false teachers are saying they had a vision of an angel. I don't care if an angel comes down from heaven himself, not just through the visions of a false teacher, but comes down here in person and preaches a legalistic gospel, let him be accursed. An angel would be the highest possible authority next to Christ and God, and that's why people appeal to angels. The Judaizers also appeal to great apostles like Peter, James, and John, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. They always look, everybody's looking for authority. Paul is too, actually. And I don't know when the Judaizers did this. Perhaps Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is referring to when they caused factions in the, in the church at Corinth, because Judaizers were there also preaching a false gospel. But at any rate, heretics, they appeal to authority. They appeal to apostles. They appeal to angels. They appeal to visions of angels. Like this Todd Bentley guy down in um, Florida is appealing to Emma, the same Emma that the heretic William Branham appealed to, the nine-foot angel Emma. Always got to appeal to an angel. And there are people gullible enough out there to believe, to believe that. Now let's talk about this accursed thing. That's anathema in the Greek, which we are aware of, the word anathema. Let's look at what the options are as to the result of the curse. The NIV says eternally condemned, so that's their opinion. The curse means you're eternally condemned if you preach a different gospel. John Gill agrees with that. That's condemnation by Christ at the last day. Or John Gill at least mentions that as an option. The NIV study Bible actually agrees with that. John Gill, on the other hand, said it could mean excommunication from the church. In other words, if you preach a different gospel, let you be excommunicated. Well, that sounds reasonable. Adam Clark agrees with that, or at least he suggests it might be true. He says, quote, perhaps this is not designed as an imprecation, but a simple direction. For the word here may be understood as implying that such a person should have no countenance in his bad work, but let him, as Theodoret expresses it, and Clark mentions the Greek there, which I'm not going to read, as Theodoret expresses it, be separated from the communion of the church. This, however, would also imply that unless the person repented, the divine judgments would soon follow. So, But it could be, let him be excommunicated, or it could be Paul's giving a direct imprecation. Either way, Paul is no wussy puss. He says, the truth is the truth, and you need to get rid of error. Now, Paul uses the word before in verse 9. He says, as we have said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. As we have said before. Now that before could refer to what he said before in the previous verse. Because he said exactly the same thing in the previous verse. And that's the way I read it. That's the way I take it. But it could be as he said before when he was evangelizing the Galatians. When he started the churches. And so he might have been. Maybe that Judaistic. That legalistic era was in the churches even from the very beginning. But I don't think so. Because Paul says you have quickly turned for the gospel. I don't think he had a problem with it when he first started the church. I don't think. We do have a mention of what. Paul told the Galatians before when he evangelized them on their founding, uh, at their time of foundation. In Galatians 5.21, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar, I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he's already warned them against all kinds of, of all kinds of sins, but he doesn't mention anything about legalism. So I'm assuming that he's talking about what he said in verse 8. I told you, you're going to be accursed if you preach a different gospel. And I say it again in verse 9. You're going to be accursed if you preach a different gospel. Serious business. We now go to verse, well, let me, one more point, one more point. Let me point out in verse 9, Paul says this, If anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, 
Here's a translation issue, contrary. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, the Greek for contrary includes besides as well as contrary, which would make it a little bit broader. If anyone preaches you some a, a gospel that besides the one I'm preaching as well as one that is contrary to what I'm preaching. In other words, one that does not directly contradict what I'm preaching, but still is different than the one I'm preaching. That would mean, that would include doctrines that are not directly opposed to Paul and James and Fawcett and Brown. That would include, for example, the Roman Catholic Church. Well, we're not going to pick on our separated brethren about that. I don't think, I think that's a stretch, but I thought I'd mention it. Basically, and we're just going to assume it's legalist back then in Paul's time. A curse beyond those who preach directly against the clear teaching of the gospel. We're not going to worry about the peripheral doctrines because pretty soon you're denouncing everybody's a heretic. I mean, I still can't get over how James Gerson denounced dispensationalists as heretics. They are not heretics. They're wrong, as I'm very quick to point out in my humble opinion. They're wrong. They're wrong as they can be, but they're not heretics. They're going to be in heaven. My grandmama was a dispensationalist for crying out loud. She wasn't a heretic. And so pretty soon you're putting anathemas on people that you ought to be just a little bit more tolerant of. After all, we're all in this together. I mean, I have theological opinions. I've flooded the Internet the YouTube with actually minority theological opinions. I don't mind doing that, but I'm not going to say that everybody that disagrees with me has got anathema on him. He's got a curse on him. Galatians 1.10, for, for am I now trying to win the favor of people or God, or am I striving to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a slave of Christ. Now, as John Gill puts it, the Pharisees and the false apostles had great honor when they preached their junk. Oh, listen to the words of wisdom. Not old Paul. Paul gave all that up when he preached Christ. Man, he used to be a big shot Jewish rabbi. He was on the Sanhedrin even. He gave it all up. Now he's wandering around, doesn't have any money, working as a tanner in Corinth, stinky business, persecuted. Dragged before mattresses, shipwrecked, beaten, flogged. Is he trying to win the favor of people? He, no, he's a slave of Christ, and that's why he's undergoing all this stuff. So Paul's saying, look, I'm not telling you this just trying to be popular. I'm telling this to you, Galatians, because I love you and because it's the truth. I'm not trying to please anybody, either my opponents in Galatia or you either. Nobody. I'm not trying to please people. That's a good verse for those servants of Christ who are living in $20 million mansions in America. It's obscene. Absolutely obscene. They're pleasing people, all right? They're pleasing the people, these suckers who send them $100 bills. When did Paul try to please people? He said, if I were still trying to please people, that implies that at one time he was trying to please people. Well, as John Gill puts it, this is an example of when Paul did this. Quote, when he held the clothes of those that stoned Stephen, made havoc of the church, hating men and hailing men, that should say, hailing men and women to prison, and went to the high priest and asked letters of him to go to Damascus and persecute the followers of Christ. Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, as we know. And then he was trying to please people, and he doesn't, he doesn't do that anymore. He's out there getting abused for the sake of Christ. And that's, that's a, you know, he's trying to get his authority. That is a great way to establish authority. How much have you suffered for the gospel? How much have you false teachers who, who are raking in the money with your heretical books how much have you suffered for the gospel? Paul could say, I have suffered for the gospel. You might ought to listen to me. Now, he starts out, verse 10, by saying, For I am now trying, am, am I now trying to win the favor of people or God? What is that for there for? He's referring back to the strong language he used in verses 8 and 9. And he's saying, Look, the fact that I just cursed the Judaizers show, shows that I don't care about getting approval from the Jews. 
he said, you preach a different gospel, you're going to be accursed. Does that sound like I'm trying to please people? Or does that sound like I'm trying to stand up for the truth against terrible opposition? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished first verses 1 through 10 in Galatians 1. We will start in verse 11 of Galatians 1 in our next audio. And in that section of Scripture, Paul will appeal to a few biographical details to show how he was called by God. He's still trying to establish his authority as an apostle. We'll take that up in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.